Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Please note, this episode was recorded prior to the Screen Actors Guild strike. As a size 10 mixed race BIPOC woman living in Canada, who was told I would never have any career because of those things, much less the career I've had, to look at the call sheet and see number one, one, Nicola Cry Demude on a big TV show. Like we're not talking about an indie show, like a Canadian network TV show. Yeah. It was a kind of pride. You know, you're talking about this now and you're still getting emotional. So when when you take yourself back and you know what you have gone through in your 20s and all the hits that you had to take when no one necessarily knew how to stand up for you or it wasn't appropriate to stand up for you and just all the stuff that you've gone through, not just as a person of color, but also as a woman. There's a lot of sexual misconduct and it's just all such a shit we have to deal with. Not even that's exclusive in the entertainment industry. And now you have this moment where you look at the computer and it is a tangible marker that this is possible and this is you. Mm -hmm. How do you take that moment now and where does that sit in your life now and how does that sort of propel you forward? Oh, that's such a good question. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me here on Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host. Today, I continue my conversation with an extremely talented Guyanese-Canadian actress, Nicola Caria Demude, who you guys know from Shadowhunters, Burden of Truth, to My Spy, to The Boys. Nicola is no stranger to my show. In fact, she's a returning guest. And this episode is part two of her highly anticipated second appearance, So you guys are in for a real treat. Now, in this episode, Nicola delves into the complex world of external validation, a topic that's often hard to discuss openly. She candidly explores the professional and personal implications of seeking approval from others, shedding light on general patterns and its impact on self-acceptance. I mean, come on, let's be honest. These issues are something we all tackle, regardless of who you are and where you live. If you've listened in on our conversation previously, you know that Nicola is a passionate advocate on so many fronts, and she'll share more of her personal experiences that she's overcome. There are powerful lessons and thoughts shared here. So here comes Nicola Karaya Demude. I think one thing that we need to be honest about that is difficult to talk about is that as much as we want to deny it, external validation is helpful professionally and personally. Yes, absolutely. And I grapple with that a lot. I grapple with that a lot because I don't want that to be true. I don't want others' approval of me or acceptance of me to be why I accept myself. Obviously, that's a hugely problematic thing that we've been doing for generations. Right. 
Similarly, professionally, it's really unfortunate that people's artistry is negated because they haven't been given the external validation that a lot of them deserve. So it's a very complicated issue. Yes. But I will say that one thing that these kinds of accomplishments does for you, or does, I'll say for me, is it reminds you that this is not in your head. This is not tokenism. Yeah. I didn't wake up one morning and someone went, hey, here's number one on a show. I didn't wake up one morning and someone went, hey, I'm going to put you on this American network TV show. Like, that's not how it worked. I spent more than 20 years doing this. Hard fought. Yeah. And that moment of looking at that screen and seeing that happen 20 years in or more than 20 years into that journey, there's a moment of going, my hard work matters. My hard work means something. I vividly remember the day after we had our son when my husband, Carlos Gonzalez Vio, brilliant actor, one of the best actors I know, he came to me one day after our son was born. He'd just got an audition for another gangbanger on some fucking show, some drug dealer, gangbanger, whatever. And he came to me and he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't stop thinking about our son and I can't stop thinking about how damaging it was. I'm speaking, I'm paraphrasing him right now. He said, when I was growing up, seeing men in my culture only being represented as drug dealers and gangbangers and criminals, mm -hmm. he's like, I know how much pain that caused me. Yeah. And I know what it did to my perception of myself. I don't want our son to go through that. And I don't want to yes. be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And it's not that he was asking my permission, but as a couple of BIPOC actors, one thing we have had to talk about a lot is, but if you don't do this audition, what happens to our income, right? If I don't right. do this job, can we pay the bills next month? And I said right away, I was like, absolutely. And also he played those parts for so long to get to where he was. But then there's this real fear of, if I make a stand and say, I will not be a part of this anymore, mm -hmm. will you just disappear? Because someone else is going to come up behind you no, yes. and no yep. judgment of that. Someone else will come up behind you who needs that work and they'll take it. So it's not a judgment of them. But what was amazing about that moment for both him and I, I think, seeing our names there in black and white, one and two, was also going, there is hope. It does pay off. Because sometimes it just feels like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Yeah. And we feel like that so often in marginalized communities. We feel that all the time. And that's also true. But there's these moments where you go, it's not always true. Yeah sometimes we get there. He's gone from playing gangbangers to playing this like beautiful, gentle stay-at-home dad on Pillow Talk. And I've gone from playing maids and prostitutes to playing this like high-profile professional mom on this Canadian show and to playing doctors on, on like American TV. Our work is worth it. Yes. And now the next generation gets to turn on the TV and that girl like me, that chubby, mixed race kid, that ethnic, I don't think they use this term, but when I was a kid, they called me ethnic. That like chubby ethnic girl watching TV is going to see me and go, yeah, I could do that. She's going to see me and go, I could be an actor. She's also going to see me and go, maybe I could also be the doctor that she's playing. And young Latino boys are going to see my husband and go. And not see the stereotype of like the neglectful father, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The absent father or the drug runner yeah. or whatever. So, and so. With the 
bandana on the head. Exactly. Oh my God, the number of bandanas we've all had to wear in our time. But oh my God, it's true. So for me, what it does is now when I make a hard choice, like recently I made a difficult choice and it actually this time didn't have to do with race as much as it had to do with pay scale. So one thing is, I'm very passionate about this. That's what a lot of the work I want to do with the union is in Canada. I think we might have talked about this in the previous podcast, but just for a refresher, our unions are totally different, right? So one thing that happens in Canada is we have no standard of pay based on size of role like you do in the States, right? Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., there's minimum amounts that you have to be paid as you go up the ladder. And I'm generalizing, but in terms of size of parts, right? Yes, correct. Whereas in Canada, we have like a base day rate, like a base day rate for everyone. But in theory, like I got an audition last week where they wanted me to audition for the lead because they wanted someone with X number of star rating on IMDb, but they were going to pay the lead actor basic scale, the same as everyday players. Correct. Because in Canada, American companies and Canadian companies, they can do that. Yeah. So it's cheaper to come up here because, and, and partially we did that years ago. That decision was made partially to bring in more work for us, which has benefited us a lot. Correct. But a big part of my political work right now is I'm very interested in starting to see the work of Canadians be be reflected in how we're paid as well, not just allowing us in the room, but how we're paid. Yes. So what happened recently was I was offered a guest star, so a big part on an American show, and I wanted them to pay me what, not only what I was making on my last two American shows, but also what I knew my white male colleague had made playing a similar size part on a previous episode, and they refused. They absolutely refused. I was going to be making a tenth of what my white male colleague, Canadian colleague had made on the show. And I knew that I was going to be making a 20th of or something insane like that of what the Americans were making on the show. And at this point in my career, I'm in a position financially where I was able to say that, no, I'm not doing it. And they got someone cheaper. And that's fine with me. Right. Like you only say you should only say no if you're willing for them to. Yes. But oftentimes they'll say, yeah, and I'm still way cheaper than an American. Just for the record, I'm still way cheaper than you'd have to pay an American. But I just wanted there to be an acknowledgement of, no, I'm not going to. And also not just because I understand that it's a political issue in terms of Canadian versus American. I get that. And it's no one's doing anything illegal. Right. But there are a lot of producers out there. There's a lot of producers out there who have at least a good number who have paid me what I'm worth because they believe me to be equal. And those are the people that I want to work with. Right. But something like seeing myself as number one after all these years of work and seeing that paid off makes me believe that I can take on this fight and that I might actually get somewhere. I think you have. Every time you conquer something, it gives you that ability to keep hoping and keep believing that you can conquer the next thing. And that's a really important thing. And so I think that's what it's done for me moving forward is I have more belief now that if I fight and if I hold fast in what I believe I'm worth and what I believe I deserve, not everyone, but some people are going to meet me there. And those are the people that I want to work with. Nicola, what do I need to do to get you to come down here in the United States and run for government? Please. Oh, my God. We've talked about this. I am way too emotional about this stuff to ever run for government. I would just be like, because I feel like I do feel like for a lot of us, our strength is our passion. And our strength is the fact that we allow ourselves to remain personally and emotionally engaged for empathy. And but that would not serve me well in any kind of political position. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. There is another story that I really want to get to because I think we talked about this offline that was so incredibly important to me. This really hit home when we talked on the phone the other day in terms of race being political, race becoming a political thing and what that means to people like you and I, because race and ethnicity isn't a political thing for us. It is just our everyday existence Mm -hmm. because that's who we are as people. So can you just get into that? Because I thought you said it so beautifully. We have to understand that race and ethnicity, it cannot be and should not be about politics. And there needs to be an understanding about that. Race can only be about politics if the people in power are not racialized people. If the people in power are not people who understand that race is actually human beings' everyday lived experience, not a political issue. Right. And I feel the same way every time someone asks me where I stand. No one asks me this anymore because everybody knows. But back in the day when people would say, where do you stand politically on gay rights? And I'd be like, politically on gay rights? These are human beings. It's not, do you believe that there should be a highway or should we raise taxes? What is my political stance on a huge portion of population? Yes. Do I believe these human beings deserve equal rights? Like how I, it just, it blows my mind that it's just such a bizarre. So, and race is the same. You might've had other experiences and I'm sure there's people like, maybe not people who listen to this show, but I can see people when I say this in big groups, just wanting to be like, but I know someone and there's always going to be someone. But in my experience, I've never heard a person of color refer to race as a political issue. Right. We don't see it that way because we know that it's actually human beings and everyday lived experience. So I think The biggest issue around that is that it's another way of othering, like to turn turn races of people into political issues. It's just same with women. What's your political stance on women's rights? What's your political stance on the majority of the populations? It's crazy. And it's about control, right? Yeah. By turning our everyday lived experiences and human rights into political issues, suddenly we're under the governance of the people who want that control and who already have that control, right? So we need to change our whole framing of these conversations and stop talking about things like race, gender, sexuality as political issues, because they're not. They're human beings, issues of human rights in everyday life. And of course, some of that gets tied to political decisions, but it's really about control. It's about, I want to vote on how you live your life. Yeah. Because I'm the majority, I want to vote on you so I can control you and keep you in your place. And we all know this. We all know that deep down, we all know that. Some people don't. Some people don't. But we do know that the purpose of things like voting on women's health, for example, when you have men voting on women's health, when you have white people voting on the rights of people of color, when you have straight people voting on the rights of LGBTQ people, right? 
Yeah, we all know what that's about. That is about other people wanting their opinions to impact how other human beings are allowed to move in the world. Right. That's a fact of what voting is when we're talking about voting for human rights. Human rights, okay? I see it happening a lot, or I did see it happening a lot in the entertainment industry when, generally speaking, my white colleagues started to get tired of the, quote, race conversation. I want to be super clear that, and I think I've said this before, like some of the people who have elevated me the most in my career are white men. I've had a couple, I would say two or three white men in power who know they're white men, who know they have power, who went, I want you to have some of my power. I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to pay you the same as I pay the white men. I'm going to give you the parts that are going to give you a platform. I'm going to support you. Absolutely. And at that point in time, and even right now, we need those allyships, those relationships to, to get to a place to get the power ourselves. So I'm very grateful for that. But there's a whole other camp of people who feel like generally, it's not just white men, but white people in general who feel either fatigued by the conversation, which we're all fatigued. Yeah. I just don't have a choice to stop having it yeah, because it's same. my life, right? You know, like I can't be like, oh, I'm tired. We can't really not have this conversation. Yeah. Like when are we going to stop doing this? Like when is, when are we going to yeah. leave well enough alone? I'll leave well enough alone when we're equal. Until then, it's not well enough. So the example that I'll give is I was doing a play a bunch of years ago and it was a very beautiful piece that existed in a world where it was, it was an allegory. It was drawing on a lot of current things, but wasn't actually set in any particular country, any particular religion, any particular culture. So it was drawing on some real life issues, war, discrimination, but it didn't actually say where it was. Okay. And in the conversation during rehearsal, the director said that, that they were probably going to put my character in hijab. And I said, why would she be? Now I just would say no, but this was years ago and when it was still a bit more on the table yeah, yeah. for us to play it in that water. So I said, why is she in hijab? Because presumably they're Muslim or presumably she would wear at least a scarf. And I said, but that's not in the script. Like, I understand what you're saying, but if we don't have anyone in this cast who is actually Muslim. We don't have anyone. Yeah. So how can we make this family a Muslim family when we don't have one single person in it who is Muslim? Like that just feels like a crazy step too far. And I also said, we don't have anyone even working on the production team. So are we going to get a consultant? That has any reference point. Yeah. So I was like, so if I'm even going to consider this, we already have the job. But I said, if I'm even going to consider this, are we at least going to have a consultant come in to make sure that we are being respectful and true to who we're claiming to represent here? And her response was, we're not doing politics here. We're not doing politics here. That has been said to me so many times in my life. And at that point in my career, I was just done with this stuff. And that was meant to shut me down. And I think probably a lot of people are accustomed, especially when you have so few people of color in a room to saying that and having that be the end of the conversation. So we're not doing politics here. And I said, this is not politics. Race is not politics. This is these characters, but also our audience's everyday lived experiences. How is a woman in hijab going to feel coming to see this show and seeing their culture represented without any thought or research what does that say to them, not about the politics of this play, but about our respect for them and their place in our community? What does it say about us 
if we are willing to go out there and present this story without consulting people from the community that we're meant to be representing. Right. This is not politics. And I said to her, I was like, this is how people sitting in that audience feel about themselves in the world every single day when they walk out of the house. Yes. And we're calling it politics. Yes. And what was really interesting, like, oh God, I'll carry it with me forever because what ended up happening in that conversation was I was basically shut down. I know, I know the story. I know the story. And again, this is not to demonize this director. She was also in a point in her journey as an artist, figuring this stuff out and how best to tell stories. And I didn't have any other bad experiences. I think a lot of this stuff is about learning and education. A lot of this is like people are just indoctrinated. They don't yeah. know any better. They don't they know any better. Even, like, yeah. It's so insidious that they don't know any better. Which is why it's even more important for us to, in a very, and unfortunately, it shouldn't have to be our job, but it is our job to be measured and clear and respectful so we don't get the angry Latino, angry Caribbean, angry Black woman, uptight Asian, like all these stereotypes that come in. Crazy Chinese. Did you say basic Chinese? No, crazy Chinese. Crazy Chinese, exactly. So we have to be very careful. What I thought was really interesting was I've come to understand from what happened in that room that in her mind, Mm -hmm. she and I had worked together very early in my career at a time when race was much less and, and representation was much less understood and embraced in the way that it is now. And I think she perceived me as being a fundamentally white person. Uh, I think in her mind as a mixed race person, I don't know that she associated me at that point in her journey with race politics, in quotation marks, if she associated me. So my impression of that moment was I was not dark enough to have a say in race on that show because I wasn't dark. Now, the fact that my shade is being determined by a white person is a whole other issue that we deal with all the time. That's a whole nother episode. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is the moment where all the stuff you and I have been talking about today comes together. Comes to, yeah. What happens next is the one black man in the room, a young man doing one of his first shows, only black person in the room, he then puts his hand up after I was shut down. And he says, I just need to say that I agree with Nicola. I have those concerns. I'm not comfortable as a black man appropriating. I can't remember the language he used and I won't pretend to quote him, but basically he said, I'm very concerned. Right. And interestingly, right away, the director was far more interested in what he had to say, because I think in her mind and her understanding of race or lack of understanding of shadism and everything at the time, his voice mattered more because he was more visibly a minority, quote unquote minority. So there was more legitimacy. Thank you. Perfect word. There was legitimacy to his concern that she didn't see in mine as a mixed person. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was he said his piece. She said, oh, okay, interesting. Then I think we took a break. So he and I went out in the hall and he came to me and he said, I want to thank you. I'm new. I'm really afraid of getting blacklisted, which is to happen a lot to people of color and women in the theater. Yeah, I'm afraid of not getting any more jobs. If they think I have an agenda, like I'm brand new, I don't want this to be how they see me moving forward. That was the first time actually when I said to another actor where I said, okay, I don't care. Yeah, (laughs) I really don't care if I never work here again. That was the first time I ever said that. I was like, I honestly don't care. So you give me your notes. And I'll say it. And I'll take them to her. And I'll say it on my behalf and I'll kick up a big old fuss if it doesn't happen. So again, you know, these intersections of like, how do we use our power? I opened a door for him that I wasn't supposed to be allowed to open, but it empowered him to then open his own door. And then we were able to work together. And at that point in the conversation, 
the director actually came out Mm -hmm. and she saw us talking and she came over and she said, I think she apologized. And she said, I'm sorry if I was dismissive. Because, you know, let's be real. Like, it's very awkward for a lot of people. And a lot of white people have had no training or education how to communicate about race in their own work. Right. So it's very complicated. Most don't. Most don't. So it's not easy for anyone. And to give her great credit, she came to us, she apologized, and she said, I want to have this conversation. I want to make sure that you're both comfortable and I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And she followed through on that. That's so great. Yeah. So it ended up being this really valuable moment for all of us. But it brought up so many issues. The issues of at what point do you have the legitimacy to speak in a room? At what point do you have the power to not have to fear reprisal when you speak in a room? There's so many issues involved there. And also this issue of when do we have the status to speak up so that we don't have to lose more than we should? And who helps us do that? Who are the allies that step in to do that? I mean, there's so many things that can play into it. There's like gender, I'm sure, played into that situation. Possibly, I think, a general discomfort for everyone involved. But we resolved it in that case. And I was very proud of that. To circle back to your original question, it's not political. Yeah. This young man and I felt deeply on a personal level that we would be compromising our integrity, that we would be compromising the feelings of other human beings in our sphere, that we would be doing a disservice on a personal, emotional, social level to the people around us. It's not about politics. Yes. When do we start to understand that humanity and politics are not connected intrinsically unless you make them? Yes. The fact that we have made human beings political issues is absurd. It's a control. It's a control thing. It's control. It's how we control. And it's the same thing you and I talked about in the last podcast with this whole women's body image. I don't know if you saw that recent headline. Body image. The recent headline about how heroin chic is back and the anorexic look is back and all of this. And all I could think when I saw that headline was, it's because the ladies have been getting a bit too outside of themselves lately. The ladies in, in, in in Western culture have been a bit too outspoken and we're getting promoted to a few too many offices. So let's try all our means of control. And we start with things like media. We start with things like controlling what women eat, controlling what they wear so that we can control how they feel about themselves, so that we can diminish women. Yep. Then we turn on each other, right? And then we start linking our value to our appearance. And as soon as we link our value to our appearance, then that applies to our workplaces and we can be controlled professionally. And so it's this... um, Devalued. It's a devaluing. It's a constant cycle. When we make people political issues... We do it as a way to control them and we make it so that we no longer feel like our experience is valid unless it's been agreed on by committee. Yeah. (laughs) And that is a very dangerous idea. Yeah. So we need to stop using things like sexuality, gender and race. And we have to stop referring to them as political issues and start referring to them as constant human rights. We need to stop referring to human beings as political issues and start understanding that only by valuing the differences in our cultures and by treating them as human issues, as issues of equality and humanity, not as political issues, that we are ever going to get somewhere where words like meritocracy will mean anything, where voting will mean anything, 
Because what does your vote mean when you're voting for three versions of the same person? Yeah. So many wider implications. Yeah. We cannot make human beings political issues. There's so much there. And that's why I'm going to tell you again and again, Nicola, you got to come back and do double digit appearances. (laughs) I'd love it. But I just want to tell one quick anecdote to underline something that you had shared earlier. I was recording another episode with Mike Bowe who is a half Korean, half Chinese actor that's on Kung Fu. Obviously, when I grew up, there was I only saw Mickey Rooney as an Asian person in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is a grotesque caricature. And also, I've been called Long Duck Dong because of 16 Candles. And listen, I'm a huge John Hughes fan, right? But when Mike and I were talking, he was talking about how Asians at that point were cast as these undesirable social outcasts. And that is something that has impacted me as a kid all the way to growing up because I took it as, oh, I am an undesirable social outcast. To your point, it does impact people on a human level. You have to think about it from the other side of how it affects them as a person. I'm so happy to know that you're fighting a good fight. I think just as your friend, I do worry that you care too much that you're going to get yourself sick. (laughs) I'm not being facetious about that. And I really appreciate that. And I have a great support system. You and I have talked about how important support systems are in these situations because you're putting out so much energy. You need to make sure that you're replenishing that. But I have to say to you, Evelyn, too, that what you have accomplished as an Asian woman, like when I think about, you're probably the first um, Chinese American producer, certainly female producer I've ever worked with you know, even just in this context. Really? And oh yeah, I mean, in Canada in particular, I've worked with Asian Canadians and Asian Americans in in other contexts, but where we need that is in the positions of power, right? What we need is more representation on screen is great and important, but where we really need it now is in writers' rooms, in producers' rooms, at executive levels, right? At funding, at the level of funding bodies, because the only way we're going to see real change in the systemic problems that we're encountering is when the people in power, the decision makers, make those changes, are diverse and are making those changes. So for me, knowing you're out there in the world doing what you're doing, and then have taken your work a step further and created this platform, for education and for community. And I just think what you're doing is amazing. And I'm very grateful that you're doing it. I think, I hope you know how important it is. I I appreciate you. And that's why the show's done so well too, because we need this. We all need this. I think I said this to you offline the other day, but like listening to the podcast that my episode that I did with you, listening to it with my parents, my white dad, my brown mom, had this incredibly healing impact on us as a family because they heard me speaking about these issues. Thank you. They started to understand better what my experience had been, as, as I think also for a lot of us who are mixed. And not just mixed, but I think any immigrant family, like there's also a lot of issues that come up inside your own home about culture and about assimilation and about what it is yes. to be Chinese yeah. or Guyanese, Canadian or American. Yeah, it's a whole nother struggle. So I was really moved by the conversations that it started with my parents and I listening to your podcast, listening to my last episode with you. And again, it gives me hope that we have all kinds of ways in. For as many doors as are being put up at times, there's all of these other ones that are opening. Yeah. The internet and podcasts and all these different mediums that you can go out and create this content. You don't need someone to allow you to do this. There's still the old white people that are in control of the money, the grants, the finances. And until we can start changing that, 
we're going to have to duke it out. And it's a long slog, unfortunately. And I, I know we've talked about this and we'll talk about this again, but I am absolutely exhausted in terms of having to constantly be the burden of informing others who are not informed. It's exhausting and it's maddening. Mm. I've had people come up to me and say, do I see things differently? <gasps> because of my oh eyes. Oh my God, I thought you meant like, like, do you see things like metaphorically? They no. actually meant your eyes. Yeah. I'm so, I'm, I'm just, I'm so, I'm, yeah. no, I'm just so sorry. So that's another conversation. That you have, I don't even know what to say to that. Well, there's nothing to say. I don't even know how to answer that question. But it's just so devastating. And the pain that you must feel in those moments to be after all the progress and work. And when those things happen, yeah, it makes it feel like all the work we're doing and all the progress mm -hmm. have made me nothing. Because in that moment, I'm assuming in that moment, you're that little girl watching that offensively awful Mickey, you know, uh, yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's again. Yep. It takes you back. And it makes you small. It makes you small again. And it makes... It reduces you. And it reminds you that there are a lot of people in the world for whom you still don't belong. Yes. And that is a truth of the world we live in, that for a lot of people, we still don't belong. Yes. And I won't compare my experience to yours because it, they've obviously... I don't... I, we each live in our own no, no, communities no. Yeah. and with our own experiences. But when you spend a lot of your life feeling like you don't belong... And then you make all this progress and then you encounter something like that. It's very easy to feel like, what's the point? I had that recently where someone very racially motivated attack on me at a professional meeting. It was dealt with in the sense that the guy's banned from all future meetings of that organization. Or there was a debrief for the people of color to talk about my experience. But it didn't change the fact that I was like shaking for the rest of the day and had flashes of it for the rest of the week mm -hmm. because it was this weird moment of being like, I finally arrived. I sit at this table. I have a voice. I'm equal. And then this person comes in and goes, no, you're not. Because a bunch of us, whether you know it or not, don't actually see you that way. Exactly. It was a very eye-opening moment and also with the Asian hate and the racism against Asian community oh, yeah. in the last few years, I can't even imagine. I have no frame of reference for what you've been through. Yeah. And I was saying this to someone recently. Sometimes there's days when it feels like we're always one vote, one day, one action away from losing it all again. And that's yes. a very... Yes. That's it's like a, I'm backsliding. Yeah. And that's a very scary feeling. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who will say like, but there's been so much progress. Look how much progress there's been. And you look at Roe v. Wade, and then you look at the attacks on the Asian community yeah. during COVID, and you look at Black, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the murders of Black men, the missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada whose bodies have still not been found. Yeah. Yep. The finding of thousands of, I don't know if you heard about this in the States, but thousands of murdered children outside residential schools in unmarked graves in Canada. So you have all of this going around and then you have someone just look you in the face and go, you are not equal to me. And the weight of that is painful and overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I think you'll agree with me. That's another reason why referring to these things as political issues is so demeaning. Don't relegate yeah. it to politics. Don't relegate this to opinion. Because whoever said that to you, they need to take responsibility for the fact that they still live in that world. Yeah. When we relegate things to politics, we take away the personal responsibility. 
And I'm just in a neat little box that's easy to view. It's not the case. How are you doing with that since that happened? Has it been staying with you emotionally? Have you been able to Um, get support around that? I still talk about it because I was trying to figure out like, first of all, I don't even know how to answer that question. Secondly, I always know that we are the informants. We are the educators, you and I. Every day, we have to be the one to represent, to inform people who don't know. (laughs) So I had to catch myself because my first inclination was, what the fuck are you talking about? That is the dumbest fucking question I've ever heard. But I also had to look at this person and go, well, was this malicious? Mm. Or she's just completely ignorant. And she felt safe enough to ask me. So I'm trying to always weigh those. I'm still very conflicted with that situation. I ultimately said to her, I don't know. How do you see? Like, I'm not in your head. I just didn't say much because to me, that was like, I didn't even know how to compute that. There was one other thing that this will illustrate it to an extreme. I think I was in the bathroom somewhere. I don't remember where I was. And a little girl who was like, looked at me and went like this, pulled her eyes back. Oh, my God. I like reverted back to I was like six years old. Right. And I'm normally not like this. But what did I do? I walked over her like towering over. her, And even though I'm five one, but she's eight towering over her and stared her down and she ran away. So hopefully that kind of scared her a little bit, but also, you know where she's getting that from. Yeah. Right. Her parents, her family. Oh yeah. And the unfortunate thing is a huge part of uh, the population still feel that's appropriate and still see me that way. Yeah. So that was really humbling. Yeah. I just stood over her and just scared the piss out of her, but that's the world we live in. And that's, Still something that I'm confronted by, unfortunately, and we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Well, I think the only thing we can do is, which is what we're doing, is keep having the conversations, keep sharing the information, focus on education, I think is a huge thing because you're absolutely right. That's coming from her parents. There was a school in Toronto recently and there was this horrible incident of racism and it was a bunch of 13-year-old white girls on TikTok. And I won't even say the things that they were saying about this other black student. But some of them were like historical references, like to cotton picking. And right away, I was like, that's coming from the parents. They have to have heard this from the parents. So how do we educate? So recently I had a moment like that where, because like we talked about earlier, like who can play what inside the BIPOC community is now another level of conversation, right? So it started out being, let's just get some BIPOC people on TV. And now it's like, okay, but inside the community, what are we comfortable with? And mm. Not just inside the BIPOC community, but inside marginalized communities in general, right? So yes, I had an interesting experience recently where there's a character that I was up for that was a Jewish woman and everyone associated with the project was Jewish. So that wasn't an issue for me. But I had someone say to me, like, are you comfortable playing Jewish when you're not Jewish. And I realized that there's a big hole in my education around the idea of Judaism and culture. I started reading about the erasure of Jewish women in film and television. And it's something that was outside of my sphere. And to be honest, as a young person who didn't have religion growing up, my education inside my own family, at least, was like organized religion is organized religion. So there's Christians, there's Catholics, there's Jewish people, there's Muslims. There's... Right. And I was never taught that one was better or worse. I was very lucky that way to some degree. But it also means that I'm not educated on the particular cultural concerns that the Jewish community has around these issues because it hasn't been an issue for me. 
So I went to a couple of Jewish friends of mine who are in the industry, Jewish women of my age group. And I said, I hope this is okay. And please tell me if it's not, but I need to tell you that I feel like I'm very ignorant Mm -hmm. on the issues in the community for around media and film and television. Would you be comfortable, A, sort of helping educate me on that? Because I've read a bunch of stuff, but I would like to hear some, you know, your, your personal feelings. Right. And I'd also like you to tell me how you would feel as a Jewish woman if I play this part. How would you feel? And it was really wonderful because they were like, absolutely, we want to talk about this. They weren't offended that I didn't know because I admitted that I didn't know and that I'm trying to, right? That's the difference. That's a huge difference. And I remember a friend of mine, a friend, I remember going to a friend, one of my best friends who wasn't in hijab, but her sister was. And I realized that, and sometimes it would be on and sometimes it would be off. And I realized, oh my God, I don't even know. This was years ago. But I was like, I don't even understand. Like I've had all these opinions about people's religions and and women and everything, but I actually don't even really know how it works other than the research I've done online, which is who knows where that's coming from and books I've read. So I went to her and I said, would you mind having a conversation with me about the hijab and how it works in your family? Because some of you are hijabi women and some of you aren't. She was like, we want you to ask. We want you to understand. We want to share this. And in her case, it was really interesting. It was like the parents had thought that it was best for them to not wear hijab because they wanted it to fit in. But then one of the sisters decided that, no, this is a really important part of my identity. I want to do this. The other one decided they didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize that it depended on if the people in the room were family members. There were all kinds of things that I was ignorant about. She educated me not just on, you know, the rules, as a lot of people talk about things in religion, but also around what it means to her and what these conversations mean to her. the big point that she made was, I wish people would just ask. I wish people would just ask because we want to talk about it. As long as it's respectful, let's have these conversations. I think all we can do right now right. is what we're doing is having the conversation and encouraging education at younger and younger age groups yes. as much as we possibly can. Yes. So that eight-year-old girl who did that to you in the bathroom it won't just be her racist parents that she has as a frame of reference. She'll have an education in school. You know, she'll have exposure on TV. Yes. She'll have yes. some of her favorite actresses will be Asian women. It has to be, what's that word? That means holistic, holistic, a very holistic approach, encompassing and holistic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it needs to be a lot about education and not being afraid to say, I don't understand something. Teach me about it. Here's two things that make you a unicorn. One, You care enough to ask. Two, you're totally secure. And I think this is a point of strength to say, I want that education because I don't know. I think right now, one of the reasons I started this podcast is people are listening to respond and they're not listening to learn. And I also think people do not have the interest to ask or the perception that they don't know. Yeah. And again, one of the many reasons why I love you, Nicola, is you care so much. You are open to going to somebody and being thoughtful enough to say, hey, I don't know this. I'm okay with saying I don't know. Ultimately, people have to give a shit enough to go and ask. Yeah. And secondly, the first step is to understand that you don't know what you're talking about. And a lot of people don't believe that they don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because they did their research on Instagram. So we have a long way to go, but 
I just wanted to say this. Yeah, we do need representation in all fronts. And I don't mean representation just in terms of color and shadism. And that's a whole nother fucking series. Yeah, we didn't even get into shadism. <laughs> but it's about the values. No, but we're, you're coming back for double digits. Yeah. I have to point out again, one of the things is this podcast and these conversations isn't just about being a minority. It is all of that, but it is also about your character and your integrity. It's about understanding who you are and all of your fans that love you on Shadowhunters, Burden of Truth, and your credentials go on and on. That's a whole nother show right there. But they need to see you as a whole, Nicola, not just a Canadian Guyanese, not just as an activist. Who is Nicola as a whole, as a person? Mm-hmm. And I think that you represent not just the things that you're fighting for on a race level or a gender level or a body level and all those other things that you're fighting for, because that goes that's as long as your credentials. But you're talking about truth, integrity and care. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also hugely something that we all need to represent is do you actually stand up and fight and show up for the things you believe in mm-hmm. as a person? Yeah positivity, equality, love, inclusion. And I think that's also something that we need to look at is a lot of people in roles of representation in government. Yeah. One doesn't gel with the other. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think your genuine care and that you reach out to go, okay, I can learn this. And I know that you do your homework, but you also go to that person or that community and say, okay, what's going on here? How does this affect you? Mm -hmm. And you take the time and you educate yourself. And I don't think that's happening. I also think it's a journey. I didn't always do that. I think I, when I was younger, I, I was a lot more afraid of not knowing things. I think we give ourselves and our communities and our cultures at large, we give them a great gift when we allow ourselves to not know and to seek answers from the people who can give them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that's strength. Ha. <sighs> I think you're such a strong woman and I absolutely adore you. Right but, back okay, at so you. Here's my thing. Nicola, the first time you came on, I asked all of my guests to do a signature sign off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. This time being that you're a repeat offender, I'm going to ask you, to let me know who you are and what you encourage others to represent. My name is Nicola Karai Demute, and I encourage others to represent the hope that someday we will all put human beings above politics and everything else. I want to extend my heartfelt thanks and love to the incredible Nicola Karai Demude for her time, honesty, and for working every single day to make this world a more equitable, inclusive, and positive place for all of us. Nicola, your unwavering commitment is so inspiring. Thank you. Now, Nicola is such a badass in the best way that I know you're going to want to follow her. So I'm going to make it easy and I'm going to have her social links in the episode description. All you got to do is click. Now, if you like this episode, and I hope you did, please support the series and you can do that by downloading the episodes, sharing them, subscribe to the show and leave a review. Next up, I have an extremely special episode where I'll be marking the 9-11 anniversary. I have a powerful an unbelievable story of survival, love of country, and trying to find peace with pain. My guest is Race Buyan, who is a survivor of post 9-11 hate crimes. Around noon, a man wearing a bandana, sunglasses, baseball cap, holding a solo double-barrel shotgun, walked in. 
and pointing the gun directly at my face, he asked, where are you from? And having been robbed before, I immediately opened the cash register and offered him money. The cash I placed on the counter in exchange for my life and his gaze remained fixed. And then he mumbled the question, what are you from? Despite pleading for my life, he pulled the trigger. It is an incredible conversation that celebrates resilience, unity, strength that we all saw and that we were all a part of after 9-11. Don't miss it. Thank you to the listeners to know that you're out there hopefully enjoying and connecting with these conversations. It is so incredible. Thank you. Please feel free to reach out, share your thoughts. You can find me on Instagram at Revan underscore podcast. And don't forget, go to YouTube and you'll see some exclusive content. Now I have to send love to my crew. Nelson Pinero, my technical director, cares so much about this show and helps me bring this series to you. And of course, Gracie Kong for her magical powers. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Attention, fans of fairy tales that are magical, hilarious, and grim. The award-winning Pinna Original Podcast Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest has new episodes out now. While you've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm, you've never heard these tales told in quite this way. I'm Adam Gidwitz, best-selling and Newbery Honor author of Books for Children, and in Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, I share the real, weird, grim fairy tales with real, weird, hilarious kids. In each episode, you not only get to hear a story, but you also get to enjoy this group guessing what'll happen next, cracking jokes, and sharing their own perspectives on the tales. Also, heckling me. They love to heckle me. The episodes are rated on a scale from grim to grimmer to grimmest, so there's always a great variety of tales to explore with your family. You can listen to Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest now wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow the show so you don't miss new episodes. 